Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In a quiet neighborhood, nestled deep in the heart of North Carolina, a darkness grew. It festered within the walls of a decrepit house, where the stench of decay and the whispers of the dead hung heavy in the air. This was the lair of Pazuzu Algarad with his girlfriend Amber Birch, whose name would become synonymous with Evil claiming the lives of two innocent victims and leaving a community in shock. As we delve into the case of Pazuzu Algarat and his girlfriend, we are forced to confront the depths of human depravity, his reign of terror, fuel by drugs, violence, and an avowed Satanist. But what drove this man to such unspeakable acts? What demon possessed him, driving him to live in squalor, surrounded by filth and decay? The Pazuzu Algarat case gained media attention and became one of the most horrifying cases in North Carolina history. Join USS as we venture into the heart of darkness, exploring the twisted mind of Pazuzu Algarat and the horrors that he unleashed upon the world. This is a story that will chill you to the bone, a cautionary tale of the dangers that can lurk within the human soul. This is the case of Pazuzu Algarat and his girlfriend Amber Birch. San Francisco, sometimes referred to as the city by the Golden Gate. The mild summers, the variety of the city's architecture, the Golden Gate Bridge, and of course, Alcatraz are what makes San Francisco famous. Because of the robust growth of its technology sector. San Francisco has risen to the position of the second most expensive city in the United States in which to make a home. And despite the fact that the city has always been on the more expensive end of locations to live, rumors have it that the situation was a lot better in the 1970s. When they first moved to San Francisco, Timothy Lawson and his wife Cynthia were two of the approximately 715,000 people who made the city their permanent home. They wed in 1971, and seven years later, in 1978, they presented the world with their first and only child, Baby Pazuzu, who at the time was known only by the name John Alexander Lawson. The kid had been with them from the beginning. John's birthday is August 12th, and he was born in 1978. Two of the happiest years of his life were spent at this location until his family relocated to North Carolina in 1980. He took his mother and his father with him. He enrolled in the elementary school in his neighborhood, but shortly after beginning the second grade, John's life began to see an increase in difficulties. As a consequence of John's inability to live up to his instructor's expectations, he was had to repeat the second grade. Additionally, John's mother and father would eventually divorce when John was eight years old due to constant fighting in the family home. This would create further problems for him in his studies as well as his personal life. 
John and his mother were left to go on with their lives after the departure of John's father, who had relocated back to California during this time period. John, his mother Cynthia, and his stepfather, who is also named John, moved into a house on Knob Hill Drive in Clements, North Carolina, when John was 12 years old because Cynthia had remarried a man named John Larry James. John's stepfather was also named John. After moving, John's life would become more difficult for a variety of reasons. At the age of 13, he started drinking alcohol to excess, often going through an entire 12-pack of beer in a single day. In John's environment, feelings of desertion and betrayal were just as frequent as anywhere else. Around this time, John made some significant shifts in his life that had a significant impact. After failing the class for the second time in the ninth grade, he decides not to continue his education at West Forsyth High School, which is conveniently located just down the road from his house. After dropping out of school, he made no effort to look for a job either. Instead, he immersed himself in the murky underworld of drug dealing, purchasing, consuming, and eventually selling illegal substances. In addition to this, he started to develop a growing fascination with the occult as well as Satanism. Pazuzuila Algarad was the name he used after officially changing his identity from John Lawson in 2002. Those in Pazuzu's immediate vicinity could now perceive a very abrupt change in the character of his aura. He had gone from being a boy who was fearless, fiery, ambitious, and full of energy to becoming a kid who was gloomy, anxious, and cautious. Pazuzu also developed agoraphobia around this time, which manifested itself as feelings of unease and fear whenever she was in an environment with other people. To a large extent, he shut himself off from the rest of the world. And at the end of the same year, Cynthia and her most recent husband, John, would end their marriage and divorce. He planned to vacate the premises, leaving Cynthia and Pazuzu to fend for themselves in the world on their own. Pazuzu was already a disturbed young guy, but things were going to start becoming significantly worse for him very quickly from here on out. Pazuzu was diagnosed with schizophrenia in addition to his many anxiety disorders and he also suffered from acute sadness. He was prescribed medication to treat these conditions, but, as was the case with everything else in his life, he overused the drugs. Drugs eventually replaced all other forms of cash in Pazuzu. Satanic tattoos started to develop everywhere on his body, even his face. He also braided metal into his hair and etched the number 666 into his flesh in the form of a cross. He even stopped taking showers and stopped cleaning his teeth, certain that being dirty granted him superhuman abilities. His satanic rituals advanced to previously unreachable levels as well. His mother would take him to the local pet store on the day of the full moon of each month in order to purchase a living rabbit for him. Pazuzu would then take the rabbit down to the Yadkin River, where he would consume the heart of the rabbit. She would then deliver the bunny to Pazuzu. This practice, according to Pazuzu, 
would give him a thrill that could not be compared to anything else. It was the only experience in his life that could compare to it. And despite the fact that Pazuzu suffered from agoraphobia, he maintained a large social circle that included a number of intimate relationships. His primary companion was an individual by the name of Amber Birch, who was also known by the alias Bubbles, and she would slavishly follow him. Both of them, along with many other friends of Pazuzu's, would often engage in activities such as self-harm and bloodletting in local graveyards while also engaging in binge drinking in their own homes. All of Pazuzu's strange interests and pastimes would continue to develop and broaden as time went on as well. He developed an unhealthy preoccupation with the infamous cult leader Charles Manson, who served as a direct influence for him as he established his own family. He started calling all of his girlfriends his fiancées, and he invited his friends, most of whom were younger women, to live with him in his house. Eventually, he became engaged to one of them. After Amber, Crystal Madlock would become one of Pazuzu's primary girlfriends, and the three of them would begin to live a polyamorous lifestyle filled with drug use, rituals, and orgies with people they didn't know. Their way of life deteriorated deeper into a hedonistic haze as time went on. Pazuzu's mother Cynthia, who was content to spend most of her time confined to only her bedroom and the attached bathroom, allowed her son unrestricted access to the rest of the home. He then proceeded to ruin it, scattering garbage and animal droppings on the floor in every room he entered. As time went on, Satanic symbols began to sprout all over the walls and doors of the building. The front entrance itself served as an unwanted indication, with a sign that said no police are welcome, a sign below that ridiculed anybody who backed the law, and a sticker that read Evil will triumph. His never-ending cycle of drug use, alcohol consumption, and wild partying was his lifestyle. It was said that Pazuzu's abode was a location where there were no laws or restrictions, a place where one could be themselves without fear of repercussions. It was during these parties that Pazuzu would often bring up elaborate stories of him murdering other people. He would even claim to have killed a few of prostitutes before devouring bits of their bodies. He would do this while under the influence of alcohol and drugs. Friends of Pazuzu either didn't take his allegations seriously or laughed it off, thinking that he was merely going through a bender due to the booze and drugs that were in his system. Pazuzu, on the other hand, never showed any emotion in regard to these events. We'll just be in Virginia for a little while, but it's only to the north of North Carolina. Now we are in the year 2006. The business of recovering and training horses was something that Josh and his wife Stacy Wetzler wanted to get into, and so the two of them decided to buy a small farm together. They were a young couple who shared a vision of compassion that included providing care for animals. They had known one another for a few years before to their business venture, and it had always been a part of their ambitious goals. Josh had a deep-seated respect for both humans and critters. 
He was kind, extroverted, and nice to others. Josh was an honest and sincere person, despite the fact that he enjoyed spending his time with others who had a more carefree attitude toward life. Stace's pregnancy was discovered to everyone's great surprise one morning, and as a result, the two OF them now had even more reasons to look forward to the future together. But then, in the middle OF 2007, at the beginning OF the Great Recession, firms throughout the UFPS started to fail, and as a direct result, Josh and Stacy's business was unable to obtain the loan that they had been hoping for with all OF their hearts. BY 2008 the couple had fallen behind on their mortgage payments for a number of months, which ultimately led to their being compelled to give up their business. And when the company's fortunes began to decline, as so did the quality of their relationship, they eventually came to the conclusion that they needed a break from one another. Stacy relocated to another farm in search of employment, and in the meanwhile, Josh found housing in a modest trailer and because he was unable to find work or any other way to generate money, Josh turned to peddling illegal substances. This was a poor decision, and things only kept getting worse for him after that. Later that year, authorities would search his trailer on the basis of an anonymous tip, and as a consequence, he was convicted on drug charges, making it much more difficult for him to obtain honest work at this point in his life. Josh was truly thrust into a world of shame and poverty as a result of this, but he made an effort to maintain a good attitude about the circumstance. Even though he had to give up his company, his wife, and his white vest, he was able to keep his child and have a wonderful bond with Stacy. They even entertained the idea of picking up where they left off with one another. But all of a sudden, in July 2009, the police discovered his vehicle deserted in the parking lot, with the key still in the ignition, the door not completely closed, and the window rolled down. And ever since that day, he had not spoken with Stacy or any of his other bodies in any way. The police failed to provide Stacy with any information on Josh's automobile, and Stacy, under the impression that Josh was attempting to avoid the authorities, did not identify Josh as missing either. After that, Josh Wetzler vanished completely from the scene. Three months later, on October 3rd, in Clements, North Carolina, a man by the name of Tommy Welsh intended to see his brother Rusty at his residence. This was to take place after Tommy Welsh had crossed the state border back into North Carolina. The two got along quite well. Tommy was 31 years old, while his brother was just 30. Due to the fact that Rusty was working the day shift at his local Domino's Pizza on that particular day, it was determined that the two would need to hook up around dinner time. This was the ideal opportunity for Rusty to carry some pizza home. But Tommy was unable to be found when Rusty arrived at his place at about 6 o'clock in the evening. This was not the norm. Tommy was a man of impeccable timekeeping. Rusty tried to reach Tommy B.Y. text and then B.Y. phone as the pizza began to lose its heat, but he was unsuccessful. Tommy never provided a response. Therefore, the sun went down as it usually dozed late in the evening, and then, 
as reliable as a watch, it rose again the following morning. But even after a sleepless night, Tommy did not break his quiet the next day. In point of fact, it did so every day following that for the simple reason that, similar to Josh, Tommy disappeared into thin air. Since we had last talked about Pazuzu, the situation in his home had significantly deteriorated, reaching new depths of despair. The property had fallen into a deplorable state as a result of several years of drug use, excessive partying, and neglecting to clean or wash. It had gotten to the point where it was practically hard to see the flooring, and the odor coming from within the house was said to be the most offensive scent that many guests had ever encountered in their lives. Pazuzu was still getting high, writing on the walls with his own blood, and even peeing and defecating on his own carpet in front of his pals on a regular basis. He was also sketching on the walls with his own blood. In addition, he had sharpened the tips of his teeth using the dremel, and the middle of his tongue was cut along the middle like a snake's. And despite the fact that all of these behaviors are completely unacceptable, they are not technically illegal. He continued to ramble on with his tales of killing homeless people and prostitutes, but now he also claimed that he had a dead corpse hidden away in the basement of his house. It appeared that he had murdered a guy B.Y. shooting him six times and then hiding the body in the basement of his home B.Y. covering it with cat litter and bleach. However, his buddies, who were on the same level as Pazuzu, laughed it aside. But the next day, one of Pazuzu's other pals, Tarina Billings, recalled what they had spoken about the day before. And after observing numerous members of Pazuzu's family engaging in questionable behavior with a shovel, she made the decision to report it to the authorities. It was on this very day, August 3, 2009, when Pazuzu was spotted for the very first time by the authorities. Tarina Billings ran into a detective when she was at Anerby Park, and she shared with him the information that a friend of hers had informed her that Pazuzu had buried a body in the backyard. Pazuzu was questioned B why the police about the accusation, and they asked him whether or not the information was accurate and whether or not they may check about. His response consisted of no and no, and that was the end of it. The police then left without making any plans to continue their investigation. The following month, on September 24th that year, an anonymous tip was received with virtually identical information as the previous one. Surprisingly, Foth, the cops did nothing with this information. Tarina, who was feeling unhappy with the circumstances, would soon return to Pazuzu's with a covert audio recorder in her possession. In addition, while she was filming, she was told B.Y. Pazuzu and several of his other acquaintances that he had, in fact, been responsible for the death of another person. But even when this was turned over to the authorities, nothing further was discovered as a result of this. It wasn't until February of 2010, after Josh's estranged wife Stacy heard reports of Josh's death and went to the police, that the authorities eventually carried out a search warrant on Pazuzu's property. However, even with cadaver dogs searching the area for the fourth time, they did not find anything. 
There was never even a shred of evidence that human remains had been there. Pazuzu, together with his family and fiancés, did not make any effort to tone down their crazy lifestyle, despite the repeated visits they received from law authorities over the period of almost two years. Instead, there would be a significant increase in the amount of chaos. Pazuzu was responsible for choking his own mother in May of 2010. She first filed accusations against him, but she decided to abandon the claims at a later time. On June 7, 2010, a young guy by the name of Joseph Chandler was discovered dead beside the Yadkan River. This was the first really terrible occurrence that took place on that day. He had a gunshot wound to the back of the head, and the investigation into his murder would later point the finger at Nicola's Rizzi, who was a friend of Pazuzu's. Pazuzu I said to have had nothing to do with this, all for he would try to cover for Rizzi if it was discovered that he did. In the end, Rizzi would be found guilty of involuntary manslaughter and given a sentence of 13 months in prison for the crime. For Pazuzu, the most serious accusation would be accessory to murder, which carries a maximum sentence of five years of house arrest and probation. In the latter part of 2011, Amber would end up being the one who assaulted Cynthia. However, this time around, Amber would never be charged or convicted for her activities, and Cynthia would never pursue prosecution for any additional attacks either, citing her fear of her son and his religious rituals as the reason. This time around, Amber would never be charged or convicted for her crimes. Pazuzu's run of good fortune came to an end in 2014, after the improbable chain of events that had transpired up until that point. At a late hour during one of Pazuzu's home parties in the month of October, he approached one of his longest standing pals, Matt Flowers, and begged for his assistance in killing someone at a party. Matt reluctantly turned down the offer, and instead he whispered to the target to get the heck out of there as quickly as possible. The very next day after that, Matt reported himself to the authorities and detailed all of his worries and observations to them. It turned out that Matt was a combat veteran, and as a result of the passive amount of authority that this provided, the police appeared to respect and listen to the individual. Because of this fresh piece of information, the authorities have chosen to execute a second search warrant on Pazuzu's property. And in contrast to the last time, this one would be very different. At 2749 Knob Hill Drive, the police carried out the search that was authorized by their warrant on October 5, 2014. Pazuzu, his mother, and everyone else who was staying in the house were all forced to leave the property for the time being. It seemed as though the front door had been transformed into a wormhole when the police officers entered through it. They were immediately confronted with the stark contrast and oppressive environment, as well as the putrid smell. The walls and ceilings were covered with graffiti and other images. Symbols of the devil could be found in every corner. The home was infected with both living and dead flies, and around the premises, 
There were both animal and human waste products that had been defecated on. Over 15 cats, many dogs, multiple snakes, and various other animals were some of the creatures that Pazuzu would sacrifice or dwell with. There were even sections of the home in which it was impossible to see the ground. The carpet was caked with feces, and in the areas where rubbish had been removed, the walls and ceilings were covered with mildew. Even in the basement, there was no improvement in the situation. The location was a total mess. The furniture was as so badly damaged that it was unrecognizable, and because this REO is connected to the outside in some way, the other items here also deteriorated at a much faster rate. It was discovered that there was a region that was coated with chlorine and cat litter, which was similar to the account that Pazuzu had told while he was quite intoxicated. And outside, the significance of what had just been said began to sink in. The law enforcement officers had seen that the earth was uneven, and as a result, they had places of particular interest to thoroughly excavate. When they did, it seemed like all of their darkest worries had been realized. There, they discovered the remains of two individuals, both of whom had been subjected to the elements to such an extreme degree that it would take forensic teams a considerable amount of time simply to grasp what they were looking at. In a nutshell, subsequent studies established that the two individuals in question were Josh Wetzler and Tommy Welsh. Both of them, who had been reported missing for more than five years, had been present all along. It turns out that those rumors about anonymous tips to the police are true. Both of them were placed in their own individual graves that were rather shallow. As time progressed, more and more information on the fatalities became available. There was never any clear explanation offered as to WHH why Josh was slain. In the end, Puzuzu put a bullet through his head. After that, he paraded around town for many days wearing Josh's bloody bandana as a prize. This was demonstrated through his pals and videos. Three months later, Amber went to a petrol station to pick up Tommy from where he had been dropped off. After that, he went over to Pazuzu's place to have a few beers, and as he was sitting on the sofa, Amber shot him in the back of the head with a 22 caliber rifle. He died immediately after that. After his death, he was also laid to rest in the backyard. Pazuzu Algarad and Amber Birch were each charged with one count of murder and one count of accessory after the fact to murder after the bodies were found. These charges came as a result of the finding of the bodies. In addition to this, it was discovered that Pazuzu's mother, Cynthia, had been present on the property at the time of both killings and was aware of what was taking place. At one point, she even came out to find Pazuzu standing over Tommy's body. Tommy had been dead for quite some time. She did not report either incident to the police. Neither one. Neither one. She did not go out, but rather returned to her room and prepared herself for work. And in spite of this, she would continue to evade any and all accusations in the years to come. Pazuzu chose to take his own life on October 28, 2015, 
in order to avoid spending any longer than necessary in the public eye before the commencement of his trial. The size, of course, very unfortunate. He was discovered to be dead in a cell with several wounds to his body when his body was discovered. This would mean that Amber Birch would have to go up against the jury by herself. And after being informed of the gravity of the situation, she agreed to a plea bargain in which she would plead guilty to murder in the second degree, armed robbery, and being an accessory after the fact to a murder. As a consequence of this, the judge imposed a prison term that could not be less than 39 years long. It is anticipated that she will be freed in the year 2045. In addition, Pazuzu's other fiancé, Crystal Matlock, entered a guilty plea in June 2017 to the charge of conspiring to commit accessory after the fact to second-degree murder. She was given a prison term that must not be less than three years and ten months long. If you ask me, the tragic tragedy of Pazuzu Algarad can be summed up in one word. Carelessness. If you ask anyone else, it's a case of horrible neglect more than anything else. In this instance, we are once more brought back to the need of maintaining good mental health. Pazuzu was a man who met the diagnostic criteria for psychosis, and he was someone who had an urgent requirement for supervised mental health therapy. However, he was never really guided in the appropriate manner on this matter, because he suffered from schizotypal personality disorder, panic disorder, agoraphobia, alcoholic dependency, and extreme anxiety. His mind was always in a state of turmoil as a result of all of these ailments. One that, in the end, developed an unhealthy preoccupation with Satan. However, rather than providing assistance to her son with any of his problems when warning signs surfaced throughout his formative years, his mother chose to ignore them and even fan the flames of a deviant dream. In the end, the damage that she inflicted on Pazuzu, along with all of her carelessness, was beyond repair. Even when Pazuzu's behavior went from bad to worse and became hazardous beginning in the early 2000s, his spouse continued to disregard all of the warning signs and never gave any of his overt threats the attention or gravity they deserve. Josh Wetzler, Tommy Welsh, and Joseph Chandler all ended up being killed as a direct result of this in the end. It wasn't just two people who lost their lives. However, the police continued to disregard the several tips they received from a variety of sources that stated two bodies were located in the backyard. Even after he had run afoul of the law, he was placed on probation but not subjected to any intensive monitoring or given the appropriate therapy. It is quite unlikely that anybody will ever know for certain how many people Pazuzu truly killed. However, while high on drugs and inebriated, he would tell his spouse stories in which he discussed murdering other people. However, now that he is dead, it is quite doubtful that we will ever know the exact number of people he has killed. Amber was just as evil as Pazuzu, but she was exposed to and affected by him starting at the very early age of 15, and Pazuzu was known to be a highly manipulative individual, 
Essel their eyes an argument that his influence was a significant component in this situation. Amber was just as bad as Pazuzu. In 2015, Pazuzu's home was razed to the ground. After years of people throwing parties in the house and defecating on the carpets, it was plainly unsafe for anyone to live there. And the piece of land where the two men were slain I still unoccupied today. It can be seen on Google Maps as a barren aria with a patch of F grass. If this property is ever redeveloped, I have high hopes that the new residents will lead lives that are fuller of joy and better for their health than those of the previous occupants. Thank you for joining USS Today as we explored the case of Pazuzu Algarat. If you found this discussion informative or thought-provoking, please consider giving USS a thumbs up and subscribing to our channel for more content like this in the future. We are curious to hear your thoughts on the Pazuzu Algarat case. Do you believe that he was responsible for more deaths? Is there any truth to his tales? Please share your insights with USS in the comments section below. We appreciate your attention today and remind you to look out for one another. Goodbye for now.